Are you interested in attending one of the field's largest gatherings of K-12 education innovators? The Aurora Institute Symposium 2023 promises community lessons about education innovation from the field and the latest research and policy to support education transformation. We know that after attending, you will leave equipped to take immediate action in advancing next-generation learning designs. This event will take place October 15th through the 17th, 2023 in Palm Springs, California. You can find out more at aurora-institute.org. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and I am Nate McLennan. It feels like the microschool revolution has happened fast. Everybody is talking about the pros and cons and how to scale models that are shown to work to improve outcomes for young people. And while homeschool cooperatives, small boutique schools, and one-room schoolhouses have been around for a very long time, state legislation allowing money to backpack with learners to their choice of learning experiences combined with pandemic learning have fed this acceleration. The bottom line is we're seeing a lot of innovation around learning models right now. And personally, I think that the overarching outcomes of education should include agency, a love of learning, physical and mental well-being, and well-developed skills to thrive and engage in the workplace and community. I feel like that this is shared by all and yet challenging to implement well. And it seems that every educator knows that one size does not fit all. And the question is, are we beginning to identify a set of features for schools and learning environments that maximize human growth and potential for every single student, not just some, to reach these outcomes such as agency and these skills that I alluded to? Is personalized learning and mastery-based approaches at the heart of the solution set? I'm always excited to learn from these innovators who are building new school models and not only helping young people they serve, but perhaps helping us find the set of approaches that best support a positive and vibrant future for the world. So today, I'm super excited to be joined by one of these innovators. Orly Friedman is the head of school at Redbridge in San Francisco, which is a unique learning environment that builds agency in young people. Orly has worked in the DC public schools, Con Lab School, and with Transcend, among many other experiences. And Orly and I had a chance to catch up at ASU GSV. And so, Orly, I'm excited to talk about Redbridge today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So, let's, I'm always interested in people's stories. So, let's start with your story. Um, any influences or experiences that have driven your path today to leading an innovative school in San Francisco? Definitely. Um, Well, one of the stories that I tell when I'm talking about our school with prospective parents is actually about learning violin when I was younger. So when I was about four years old, my mom said, you should learn to play an instrument. You choose which instrument you'd like. And I chose the violin and I learned to play and I practiced and I went to recitals and I joined our school orchestra and I you know, continued on learning violin until I was in about seventh grade. And at that point, after school, there were things that I wanted to do more than sit around and practice violin. And so every night after dinner, my mom would say, it's time to practice violin. And I would drag my feet and we would get into arguments. And it was just this daily source of tension about me practicing. And it was really my mom saying it's time to practice and me finding ways to avoid it until we got to a point where she said, if you're not going to practice violin anymore on your own, then I'm not going to pay for lessons. 
And that was the first time when I actually had to think to myself, is violin something that I'm doing for myself or is it something I'm doing for my parents? Um, and so I thought about it for a week and I reflected on what violin meant to me. And I realized that actually I did enjoy playing an orchestra a lot. And I took a lot of pride in those recitals. It was something I actually wanted to keep doing. And so I decided from that point on that violin was something for me. And my mom didn't have to ask me to practice anymore. I continued playing through high school. Um, and so that's my violin story. But to me, that's really what giving students agency over their learning means. It means helping them realize that they are the ones that not only should be in control of their learning, but also should care about it the most. Um, and so that is the ethos behind Redbridge, this school that is really designed to reinforce and support student agency. Um, and I know that everyone has a story like this. Oftentimes it's in college when people are asked for the first time, what do you care about? Um, like what's important to you? Um, so, so that's one of my stories. Oh, I love it. It's beautiful. I mean, we, we're talking a lot about agency at Getting Smart, and I'm hearing it as a buzzword in a lot of portraits of graduates and things like that across the sector. But, but rarely have I seen it embedded into a mission. And so you all put agency, development of agency, front and center in your mission. And so you must have a really clear definition of agency. And, and I wonder if you could share that with us. Uh, what does that look like for you all? Yes. Agency is such a buzzword. We define it specifically as the ability to set meaningful goals and have the will and skill to achieve them. And that definition comes from the research that Albert Bandura, a professor at Stanford, did about human agency. And what we did is we took the features of human agency that he studied and put them into this definition that could apply in schools. Got it. So meaningful goals um, and then the will to achieve them. So it, it seems to me that if we're, we're thinking about a school model um, like Redbridge, it's pretty easy to see if a student is setting a goal. I can ask them to setting, set a goal and then I can see if they actually did it. W what about um, the other part, like thinking about the will part? Because that seems to be really difficult to understand if someone has the will to achieve a goal. Yeah, the will and the skill piece. So in addition to giving students opportunities to set goals, make plans to achieve them and reflect on them during the day, we also have developed a curriculum around what we call work habits. And work habits are essentially the executive function skills that you need to be able to follow through on your plan to achieve those goals. So the will and the skill part. And our work habit curriculum is divided into eight categories that include skills like time management, goal management, focus, initiative, collaboration, self-knowledge, and a couple others. And then within each of those eight categories, we have skills specific to students' level in each of those categories. Got it. Okay. So... Um... So the, the, these, the, these work habits, 
are a way to measure the agent. I mean, is that your way? Those are the skills so that someone can develop agency, right? So if, you're, if the end goal is a student feels that, that they have agency, you've articulated that these skills are part of that. Did that start with, did the school start with those or did you add those on later? Was it an evolution or was it a, a, a creation? So those work habits actually started in my previous role when I was working at Con Lab School in Mountain View. Um, and to give a little bit of context for how they came about, I was part of the founding team of the Khan Lab School in Mountain View, which was founded by Salcon of Khan Academy. And at that school, students used Khan Academy for a portion of their day to advance in various subjects. And what we saw as we watched students using the, the, the technology there was that some students really zoomed ahead in their learning. Other students benefited for a while and then sort of plateaued and other students never really took to it. And it didn't have to do with their academic ability or their intellectual capacity. It really had to do with these work habits. Can I monitor my time? Can I set a short-term goal for myself? Can I, do I understand, do I understand what it feels like to really get something? Do I know how to ask for help? And so what we realized was if students are going to be using these digital tools, then we need to be teaching the work habits to support them in making the most of these tools. And so we started developing curriculum around it when I was at Con Lab School. Every year, the teachers and I would revise those work habits as we saw the lessons play out and what students needed. And so I brought uh, a subset of those over to Redbridge, and we've done the same thing at Redbridge. We've taught them, and then throughout the year, we'll reflect on whether these seem like the right skills, the most useful skills. And we also um, benchmark them against developmental milestones to make sure that what we're expecting of students matches what students are capable of at different ages. And so do you have a progression that, so for any particular skill like time management, are you, do you have a progression of as a student or a learner moves forward? It may not be age dependent, but it's moving, that, that student's moving forward. Does that exist? Yes, um, that's exactly what we have. We have that okay. progression and, and time management is an easy one to kind of understand because five-year-olds cannot conceive of what a month out feels like. They really only understand time within about a day. And so for them, managing their time is within, you know, 10 minute increments. They are setting a goal for just one day at, or a week at a time at most, but they're reflecting on it on a daily basis because that's what they can remember. You know, like if their goal is um, talking with their line partner, they can remember one day of whether they did that. Um, and so as students progress, those goals are set for longer periods of time, their reflections happen at the end of the week instead of at the end of each day. And, and so that's how that sort of work habit progression happens. Got it. All right. So so now I'm getting intrigued with the sort of day to day, what does it look like? So first, to, just to help our audience understand, give a, a, a quick sense of um, uh, traditional grade levels or ages served, because I know you don't call them grade levels. Um, currently, and then general sense of the school, and then we'll dive into the learning model. So Redbridge is in its third year of operation right now. We have 30 students in the equivalent of kindergarten through fourth grade. Eventually, we'll be a K through eight school. We're aging up with that initial cohort. And we have five 
full-time teachers and three admin, including me. Got it. Okay. So let's talk about the learning model. I know you, you probably have your, your pitch that you, you talk about and just how do you describe it? Um, there's a lot of elements. I know I've gone onto your website, the things that are familiar and some things that are less familiar. So w- what is the, the, the way you concisely talk about your learning model? And, um, uh, and then from that, how does that look at a school day? What does that, what does that look like if I came to the school and visited? Sure. And you should. Yes, I will. Next time I'm in San Francisco, (laughs) that'll be fun. Um, So if you think about traditional schools, all of the structures and systems are designed to reward compliance from the way that students sit in the classroom to the way that they're graded, the way they interact with the teacher, the way they're promoted through grade levels. All of that is really about compliance and compliance is useful. Um, But what's even more useful these days is a sense of agency. And so what we've done at Redbridge is we've taken those traditional structures of school and redesigned them to reinforce and reward student agency. And that means that the way we group students looks different. We group them in autonomy levels instead of grade levels. And the promotion process is in the hands of the students rather than this passive sitting in a seat process. Uh, The way we grade students is different. We are developing a system we call learning credits that works more like scout badges and is a competency-based approach to grading. Um, The role of the teacher looks different and how students interact with the teacher. And then the thing that you would notice right away if you came in to the school is uh, that our physical space looks quite different as well. And even that is meant to give students more ownership over their learning be able to access materials they need on their own, make decisions and use the space flexibly. So those are some of the key components that make the Redbridge model different and really allow students to build that sense of agency, not only through curriculum, but really through the structures of the school itself. Got it. So let's, before we go on to what a school day looks like, talk to us about the physical space. Um, You said it looks different. Um, I've been in a lot of schools. You've been in a lot of schools was it intentionally designed that way? Was it by default? What does it look like? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, we we haven't changed the space that we rent much at all, but also I knew that when we found it, it would work well for this model. So it, it really, when a lot of people walk in, they say, oh, this reminds me of my office or like a modern office setup where we have a large open space and then we have breakout rooms. And the breakout rooms are not classrooms owned by a specific teacher. They're used as needed for small group instruction. And then students work in a large open space, which allows teachers to kind of keep an eye on what's going on while also working with small groups or one-on-one. Got it. And so uh, let's let's talk about, so students start the day, they come in. Do you call them students or learners or what? Do you have a specific name for them? Students or learners. Students or learners. Great. So they come in and they start the day and walk through briefly sort of what does the day look like for um, one of your learners? Sure. So I guess maybe an important thing to talk about first is actually our autonomy level grouping system, because depending on your autonomy level, your day is going to look a little bit different. Um, So autonomy levels are the way we group students instead of grade levels. And students are 
put into an autonomy level based on those work habits I mentioned previously. So essentially executive function skills, how do they manage their time? Are they able to stay focused? Are they ready to take more ownership over their learning? That's really what the autonomy levels determine. And so that's your your kind of homeroom cohort, your autonomy level group. And as students move up in autonomy level, they are responsible for making decisions about more of their day and setting goals in more areas over longer periods of time. Something that makes the autonomy level system really special and is really where the agency piece comes in is that to move to the next autonomy level, students advocate for their promotion. So they're the ones that have to approach the teacher and say, hey, I think I'm ready to take on more. And if the teacher agrees, then the student goes through a multi-week promotion process to really prove they are consistently demonstrating the work habits that will allow them to move to the next autonomy level. And significantly, these the autonomy level promotion is only about work habits. It's not about academics. So our autonomy level system is decoupled from academics. In a traditional setting, when you're in fourth grade, you learn fourth grade reading, you learn fourth grade math, you might be in an advanced group or remedial group, but the content is really dictated by your grade level. Whereas with autonomy levels, content is totally separate. So for reading, for writing, for math, students are grouped based on their ability in each subject area. And they might be with students from multiple autonomy levels in the same math group. But what those students have in common is that they're all working at a second grade math level or whatever it happens to be. Got it. Wait, so so just to uh, pause for a second. So just to make sure I understand um, there, you'll be in a, uh, you'll be in an autonomy level, which articulates how you're learning, but the, but the content you are, you're at a proficiency level, the content courses. Did I say that right? Yeah. So you might have in your math class, everybody's learning, say second grade level math, if they're at that level, but they might be in multiple autonomy levels in that particular class. Is that correct? Okay. I got it. So now let's keep talking about the day. (laughs) Sure. Um, so let's start with an autonomy level one student, uh, which is our kind of most beginning student. Um, they tend to be between five and seven years old, um, and they have the most structured experience at school. So if you're an autonomy level one, when you come in in the morning, you pick up a clipboard that has a work plan on it. And the first thing you do is you go to the different shelves around our space. And we have one for literacy skills, for math skills, for fine motor skills. And you make choices about what activities from those shelves you're going to practice during your independent work time that day. So this is the first opportunity students have to make choices about what they're going to be working on. And again, they're setting a plan just for that day. Um, And they have a few different subjects that they are going to make choices within. They also have a goal tracker on that clipboard that has two goals that they're going to be keeping in mind for the day. Usually there's one social emotional learning goal, which we call character habits, and usually one work habit goal. And those are goals that they'll keep in mind and they'll reflect on at the end of the day. So after they make their work plan, the day begins with a morning meeting. And that morning meeting happens with their autonomy level cohort. And in morning meeting, they're always going to have either a character habit or a work habit lesson. So that's when they might get explicit instruction in, for example, like choosing a just right challenge and recognizing whether you know something is too hard, too easy, or just right. 
after that, they move into their first academic block. And that's when they're going to be in math. That's our first one with students at their level. Then they have some outdoor time. They come in, they have their reading block again at their level. It'll be a different group than their math group. Most likely they have a writing group and then they have outdoor lunch and pre-play. And then in the afternoon, we have a couple of special things. So we teach two subjects that I don't think are taught elsewhere. One is called observation and observation is teaching kids to look carefully at the world around them. And so students either have observation or they have critical thinking and world studies, um, which is our version of social studies, but with an emphasis on question asking. And then the last part of the day is deliberate practice. And deliberate practice is a time when students are making choices about what they are working on based on their needs. And so in autonomy level one, deliberate practice is 30 minutes and then they have 30 minutes of indoor choice time. But in autonomy level two and up, deliberate practice is an hour. And this is when they're taking what they wrote on their work plan in the morning and acting on it. So if they need a little more practice you know, adding teen numbers, they might choose an activity during deliberate practice to support them building that skill. Or if they need more practice on writing a great lead to a story, they might choose an activity that helps them practice that. And these activities have been introduced to the students ahead of time so that they know that it's an option. Um, and then we end with a closing meeting. So that's essentially the core school day. Okay. I think I want to go. Sounds awesome. Uh, here's a, th here, a couple of things that I love that, that you said. So I love this idea of, of observation as a, as an intentionally taught skill slash course. Um, I think we've been talking a lot about problem spotting or challenge spotting in the world as a superpower for young people is how do you find something you want to do something about? And that requires keen observation skills. So I really appreciate that. And, and you're right. I, I don't think I've seen that in any other um, setting uh, that I've been in, visited and heard about. So, um, okay. So thinking about the cohort of students you have, you have 30 st students, you're three years old. Um, do you have a sense that this is for a particular type of student or is this the way? I alluded to this in my, my preamble in the beginning. Are we, are we, is agency the way we need to be moving? You indicated a little bit that there's place for maybe compliance. Um, but it, it, is this model something that could serve every student? When we thought about designing Redbridge, we really are trying to create a model that works better for more kinds of students. And I do believe that agency is something that all students need and should have in their school experience, especially in the age that we live in currently with chat GPT and new technologies that are radically transforming the way that we work and live. The only thing that's going to separate who succeeds in that world from who doesn't is whether you have the motivation to go learn how to do the thing, use the thing, um, and believe that you can set goals around it and go about transforming the world. Um, so I think agency is more important now than ever because it's not like you can just learn a static set of content um, and be fine. 
you're going to have to continuously learn new skills, learn to use new tools. And in order to do that, you have to have a sense of agency. And so I definitely believe that all students should have that as a part of their school experience. Whether you do it exactly the way we do it or not, I don't think that's as important. Um, But it can't be limited to like one classroom or like one semester's worth of experience. I do think it needs to be built into the full school experience. And one reason I feel pretty confident that what we're doing is better for more kinds of students is that it's based on research. So there's research out there that Adults in the workplace are more satisfied and happier if they have a sense of mastery over their work or craft, autonomy to make choices about what they're working on, purpose, and relatedness or relationships with the people that they work with. And it hasn't, as far as I know, been studied in a school setting, but from my experience, the exact same things are true for students in school mastery, autonomy, purpose, and relationships. And so that's at the core what we're designing around at Redbridge. And I I do believe and I see that this is uh, a better experience for more students and one that students enjoy. And if students enjoy coming to school, then you're going to create lifelong learners, build that sense of agency. Um, and that's just one piece. There are other pieces of our model too that are based on research and best practices and, and what we know works for students. Like having one teacher who really knows you and is curating your learning experience, having an adult like that, it has a huge impact on students. And that's something that we intentionally design into. Right. You know, the, the, I, I really, I'm grateful for you sharing that research with everybody. It's, it is, it definitely ties into the the research on motivation. Um, And if we can find a way, we know that, that many learners are, are demotivated by a compliance-based structure that exists today, right? So you're designing around the research-based background of saying, we, we know what motivates human. We know that humans, we know it's about mastery. I, I can get better at something. Um, this idea of autonomy and choice, this idea of uh, purpose, it, it's meaningful. And then, of course, the relationships piece. So so you've designed a model that's based in research and, and I'm, I'm seeing the connections between what motivates humans in general. So that's that's really, really valuable. Um, I know that some people are listening to this and saying, great, you can do it in a 30 person school. You have a little bit you're running an independent school model. So you're you're, you're free from the public sector. You've also taught in the public sector before, I think. Um and and so so is this achievable in the system we have now, or do we have to undo the whole system and rebuild it? Could you make a classroom that's a red bridge classroom somewhere and say, we're gonna run this like this, and we're gonna go talk to Orly and she's gonna help us implement it in our public elementary school next door to Redbridge? Is that possible or not possible? We're doing it. <laughs> um so <laughs> This year, we had a partnership with Lindsay Unified School District in the Central Valley, which is a public school district, and a cohort of six of their kindergarten, first and second grade teachers um, actually tried out using a bunch of features of our model this school year. And we're going to keep the partnership going next year and expand it. And so from the beginning, it has been our intention to design something that can be used by individual teachers or classrooms, schools, communities, elsewhere, um, and and to design it in a way that educators can take pieces of it or the whole model 
we're a long way from being able to export all of it, but we are starting to see how some of this looks and works in other school settings. I love that. I, I really appreciate Lindsay. I visited before and um, they're doing wonderful things. And I like that they're amenable to testing this out. So what specifically was the stickiest part of the model that during your, your work this, this year with them that you felt like was the most successful um, export of what you're doing at Redbridge? Yeah, so we tried three things with them this year. We tried uh, the work habit lessons that are being taught to our autonomy level one cohort. They were able to teach those lessons to their students. Um, They also were able to do a bit of goal setting within their writing block. And then they also tried out deliberate practice. And the goal setting and deliberate practice pieces, they tried like on a small scale. So they tried those within a subject rather than kind of for the whole day, which I think if that's, you know, all that your schedule allows for, then great, give it a try. Um, I think the work habit lessons were quite successful, especially when the teachers made them their own. Um, But teaching these executive function skills explicitly, I think that the teachers and the students really liked the vocabulary and frameworks that the lessons provided and were able to reference those throughout the day to support students in solving their own problems or making good choices about what they were working on and whatnot. Got it. So, um, I, I'm pretty excited to see how that evolves. I have this this I, this this concept of if we we have all these micro school models, and I know that you may grow bigger bigger than a micro school, which I have a question about here in a second. Uh, but but this idea that we could take these models that are based in research and are working in one site, allow them to replicate in other sites, not necessarily as a whole school model, but as a classroom based model. Um, and so this is a pretty interesting uh, hypothesis that I think a bunch of people are thinking about. So. Let's think about, so that's one way to scale is to replicate the model. The other way to scale is to grow your site to be larger than it is today. Do you have a sense of how big you want to be when you're, when you're K-8, um, in, in, if everything worked out perfectly? Um, and, and is it scalable even beyond that? Yeah, it actually works better and is easier <laughs> the more we scale so it was not my intention to be a micro school, but we still fall into that category at the moment. I hope we can get in the near term to 150 students in K-3 and in the longer term, 300 students. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and, and do you have a sense that, that uh, you opened in, in the hardest time to open a school, I think, right? So you opened in 2020 or 19, one of those? Yep, 2020, uh, September 2020. 2020. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, that was problematic because we had a pandemic that emerged. Uh, and so that clearly has has slowed probably enrollment. Um, is most of is it about word of mouth? Because when, you, when you're dealing with, I've worked in a lot of models and I started my own model that was different. It, it felt like the, the, the struggle sometimes was getting people to get in the door and say, this is amazing. Um, is, it, is it more word of mouth? Is it like, what, 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 are the prevent, what prevents you from getting to say 150? What are the things that are getting in the way? Yeah, we word of mouth is definitely the most effective way to scale. I actually think the pandemic helped us in growing uh, initially. And since the pandemic is waning or whatever stage we're in now, um, 
it's actually gotten harder because I think when we launched September 2020, we ended up getting a number of families signing up the summer before we opened because we started with just 12 students, which meant we could be in person. And we had a lot of families that said, uh, the most important thing for me is that my kindergartner be in person and not on Zoom for kindergarten. And I think families were willing to take a chance on a completely new school because it was worth it at that point. And the pandemic disrupted so much of life that like being a new school was low down on the list of risks. Um, and so we started with 12 students and I think our second year we had some of that effect as well. And, and now that things are pretty much back to normal, everyone's kind of like looking at all their possibilities again. And, um, but word of mouth continues to be really strong. The families that send their kids here are very happy. So we have good word of mouth spread, but the most challenging thing are things that we have very little control over, like our location logistics, you know, how far of a commute is it for families? Right. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it, that makes, makes total sense. And, uh, so I encourage anyone listening here, if you're ever visiting San Francisco or if you're in San Francisco and you have kids, think about uh, going to visit Redbridge and checking out the amazing work that's being done. Orly, uh, we are at our time. I have so many more questions, but I know we'll talk again. Um, I would love for you to close uh, with, uh, if you have a, um, uh, a message or a takeaway for our listeners, we're, we're mostly broadcasting to school leaders, innovative teachers, uh, foundations and things like that. What's the one takeaway message you have? And the second part of that question is, who is a person you'd like to amplify uh, that might not be as well known uh, in the education innovation community? Sure. Well, I guess for a message, I will go to a message. Um, it, it's a line my dad says, which is, nobody ever washed a rented car, which is to say, if you're going to take care of something, you need to feel a sense of ownership over it. And for both teachers and for students, um, we, that it's really true and we need to be designing for that. Um, and in terms of someone people should know about, I, I think what I will share is there is a school in Bogota, Colombia called Colegio Fontaine, which I had a chance to visit. And they are a demonstration school and actually have a network of schools all across Colombia and beyond called Fontaine Relational Education. And that school and the family that started it really has been doing this work around designing for student agency and creating a model that works in public settings for decades. They also have a system of autonomy levels also do competency-based learning. And um, I don't know how many of your listeners will already know about them. I didn't know about them, but visiting them was really amazing. And they've been doing this work for a long time. So that is a school and organization to check out Collegio Fontaine. That's amazing. One of the things that I'm realizing is that whenever I think that I, I know the extent of the ecosystem, I learned something like this. I had not heard of them and I learned something something like this and it makes me realize that there are so many bright spots out there uh, in learning and teaching and education. 
And the more we can network and celebrate and share and learn from each other, the better off young people will be and then the better off the world will be in the future. So I really appreciate that. Um, I think I'm going to use this. Your, your father's uh, quote is a great one. Nobody's ever watched a rental car. I, I really appreciate that. So that's one of my takeaway messages. I think my second takeaway message, which is is become preachy for me these days, is this idea of compliance versus agency. And, and you hit it right on the mark, I think, with this idea that agency is is what young people need to thrive in the future. Um, and, and and the days of compliance really are, are, are limited, I think, um, and finite. And, and I love that it's based on this idea of motivation theory that, that, that students uh, have to have, be able to show mastery of things and uh, have autonomy in their choices and have purpose or see purpose, and then fundamentally have great relationships with people. Uh, and then from the school model itself, I love this idea of the observation, uh, the, the observation class and then the critical thinking and world studies class and this idea of teaching people to ask questions and to see well. Uh, to see well in the world. And then, boy, if anyone's going to learn anything about um, uh, cool ways to think about moving students through is check out uh, Orly's and Redbridge's work on autonomy levels. There's so many interesting things about that, uh, about how they're grouping students appropriately for both autonomy and proficiency, whereas most people are just thinking about that proficiency grouping. So Orly, uh, best of luck to you. I know you and I will stay in touch. Um, if people want to find out more, what's the website they can go to? redbridgesf.org. And if people are ever in San Francisco, are they welcome to contact you and schedule a visit? Absolutely. We would love that. All right. Orly, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for all the work you're doing for young people in the world. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.